Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we're back with the Good Life Podcast today, and I am—I had the privilege of interviewing Dean Abbott. Dean is an independent scholar. Uh, he is a, a former professor. He is an author, and also he is a mentor to many. And he's working on, uh, you know, growing and growing that. Uh, practice as well, and he has written a couple of books that we're going to talk talk together about today, and one of them is called Common Good, Reflections on Everyday Vices and Virtues. So, Dean, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. So, what is your background? You know, th- th- this book is about virtue, mm-hmm. and you know, most people don't automatically come in to the world and say when they're three, I'm going to be a virtue scholar. So, you know, what is your story and how did you come to be interested in this topic? Well, I think I primarily became interested in virtue uh, by not having it. Um, (laughs) And I, so, you know, I have, since I was 15 or something, I'm 51 now. And since I was 15, I've had an interest in philosophy. Um, and I have pursued that in varying capacities, but, um, but on a personal level, I think, um, what has driven my interest in virtue has been my own struggles with my own self and my own unhappiness. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not sure how, how, which one of those is important for me to talk about or what, you, which one of those you're asking about. But, um, I would say that, you know, my reflections on virtue are a, are a place where my intellectual, my intellectual interests and my own experience trying to live in the world and be a, uh, a, a person that I could be proud of, um, come together, right? It's there, the, it's the, my interest in virtue is the intellectual component of a larger, uh, a larger personal project, which is to be the, um, the, the person that I, the person that I, that I believe God had in mind for me to be. Okay. So there's a larger moral development process. One, the, the intellectual part of which is the, these sort of interest in virtue, et cetera. Right. But the, the larger project is becoming truly human. Yes. To become myself. Yes, the one whom God made you to be. Mm-hmm. So are there any particular events that happened in your past you know, that, that, that really epitomizes something that pointed you away from yourself, mm-hmm. that, that, that says this 
this is really something that I, I need to change. I know you, you begin in your book uh, with, with with that. So is it that type of thing, or is there any other, are there any other events that that really point you in that direction? Well, I don't. You mean point me toward virtue? Yeah, well, yes, mm-hmm. t- t- towards the, the need for that. When, when, like for myself, mm-hmm. I can remember times, uh, w- w- one in particular, I was 10 years old. I was visiting my grandparents, and, and, and they were very um, easygoing. And so I spent five days just watching television because mm-hmm. we didn't get to watch much television as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, but then at the end of that five days, it was the night before we were about, I, I had to go back and return to my, to my family. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that there are two people and they were sitting on the swing together after I'd finished watching my 112th show Mm -hmm. over that week. There are two people who I love, who I've been with for a week, and I have not served them. I've not gotten to know them. I've not taken advantage of this privilege, and I've wasted my time. And, And I was 10. But... It occurred to me forcefully, I better not waste this time in the future. So then every time I spent with them from from that day, from, from that week on, every time I went to visit, which was once a year or so, I did not give myself to television. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to give myself to get to know my grandparents. Right. So, so, so for me, that was a one turning point in my life when I said, I, I've got to spend to not just do what I want to do here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm not good at picking out experiences like that. I will say a few things. Um, I think that I grew up from the time I was a boy with a very um, a very strong heroic ideal. And that I was very moved by um, the stories of, you know, uh, of Robin Hood in particular, right, as a boy. Um, very moved by the King Arthur stories. And very moved by the, uh, the stories of the prophets. And, um, and I think all of that reinforced in me that heroic ideal. And that as I grew, um, I found myself struggling with, struggling again and again with not being, living at that level, at the level of that heroic ideal, not actualizing that, right? And so I think that drove me to the, the question of why, well, why? What is it, what? What's stopping that? What's stopping me from living that way? I also recall that um, I've, I have a, a very good friend of mine, uh, and he's also, I think he's 52 now. And we've been friends since we were 13. And I remember we were probably 15, and we were sitting on his grandmother's porch. And it was a rainy day. And we weren't talking. We we're just sitting on his porch, this porch, watching the rain. And I remember a feeling coming over me, and really having 
the feeling for the like a feeling for the first time that there was something beyond this world. Like that was like the first time I recall having an experience of transcendence that yes. that told me about a reality uh, that was beyond uh, my uh, my physical experience. And now I had grown up in church, and so I'd certainly, you know, and I'd certainly read the Bible, and I certainly had heard, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and been living in a context in which um, spiritual realities were spoken about. But I really think that was my first time of sensing that there was a a moral and spiritual world beyond um, this. And, you know, and I, it, it is a little bit like um, C.S. Lewis talking about his first experience of joy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a very profound experience because, um, because I think it took that heroic ideal that I had intuited and that I had picked up from these stories um, and it placed that heroic ideal within a larger context because then the question came to me at, you know at some level even if I couldn't articulate it the question that came to me was well what is the relationship between that heroic ideal and the order of that world beyond the world that I have had a sense is there right and so um, I think those kinds of things and just consistently dealing with an early life that was emotionally very fraught and difficult um, all of that put together kind of led ultimately to that my interest in moral philosophy and, you know, virtue theory in particular. Um, is that answering your question? I'm sorry. Oh, yes, yes, I, I, certainly. It, it, it does. It does. It, and I, so, I'd say one more thing, and this is something I was really, I've thought a lot, I was thinking about a, a lot yesterday, is that uh, I have over the years uh, struggled tremendously with anxiety. Okay. Uh, I've, I've written about that on Twitter and other places. And um, and I think that struggle with anxiety too has been because uh, has has shaped a lot of the, my thinking too, right? Because whatever a hero is, he's not a person controlled by his anxiety. He's fundamentally, right. by definition, what he is not, right? Sure. Um, and so. Um, you know, many people over the years have pointed out that courage is the chief virtue. Uh, and so I think those three things, right? This in, in, intuited, intuited, heroic ideal, um, these experiences where the moral and spiritual world became very real to me and an ongoing struggle with anxiety. Those are the, personal things that put that that created this need for a certain set of answers to which you know reflections on virtue those are the questions to which reflections on virtue are the answer right 
Yes. So you put out a, a newsletter uh, that you started a few years back mm-hmm. called The Quieter Life. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that title has always both intrigued me as well as uh, stirred great appreciation in me. Mm. So what is it that made you choose the title The Quieter Life? And, and, and is that something that, that you think is for everyone or is that for a particular personality type? So mm-hmm. what all is your thinking when, when you put that out? Well... It's interesting bringing that up because I actually think I'm going to change that title at this point because I, I you know, I, I chose that um, several years ago, and I feel like at this point my interests have focused right because the quieter life can have it. I mean, I could be writing about minimalism and you know, um, or simplifying your finances. I mean, it's just it's very broad, right. and, and and what I've really realized is that my my interests are in are in um, kind of the nature of emotional wellness and inner peace and um, healthy relationships, right? So I feel like I need to make that, I want to change, I want to change that title a little bit. So I'm kind of announcing that here, right? Um, okay. But but that doesn't mean that the concept is goes away, right? It's still there in the background. And what I'm fundamentally what I mean is that uh, we pursue a life uh, in which there is uh, a priority placed upon meaning, and the um, and the habits and the sort of the infrastructure of meaning, so that we aren't. Mm, pursuing trivia and uh, filling our lives with distraction uh, in a way that crowds out those things that are most meaningful, uh, which is to say those things that most um, nourish us and lead us to flourishing, which is, I suppose, a way of saying virtue. Right, right. So the quieter life is, in a way, the virtuous life. Yes. And and, and that... Really, what was was that was about the time for me again three or four years ago when I began to seriously pursue what the best philosophers had to say about that. Mm-hmm. You know, so of course, beginning with Jesus, certainly himself. Who uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Pennington. Uh, he is a a professor at Southern Seminary, he has a book called, uh, two books. One is called Jesus, the Great Philosopher, mm. where he ties in what the, the teachings of Christ with the best of uh, Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy, and, and, as well as Roman philosophy. All right. I'm going to so, make a note of that because someone was just asking me about that. Okay. And then an, uh, another one of his books is called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. Mm where he says his thesis, and I've not read that one mm-hmm. yet. It's on my, my list. But his thesis in that book is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of what flourishing mm-hmm. looks like mm-hmm. in the same vein as all previous philosophers had taught mm-hmm. 
what flourishing, what happiness looks like, beginning with the Beatitudes. Right. You know, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Well, so, clearly, yeah. So, 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 so that for me, again, several years ago, uh, I started on on that path. But that that desire for, you know, you talked about inner peace, which which I know gets kind of a it looked at askance, but by some who think that that's a, a Buddhist, hmm. you know, or, or, or Eastern view, but having peace, being controlled by peace is as much, it, it, it's a gift that, that comes from God. Paul talks about sure. this, Jesus talks, you know, th- th- these are, peace is a very common desire among all people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, the question is where they pursue it, certainly. Right. But, you know, your book, you, you, your most recent book, Common Good, mm-hmm. talks about this type of thing. So, you know, so if you could tell us a little bit about your book, what, what are you trying to emphasize in common good i already mentioned it you know the subtitle has to do with vices and virtues but you know tell us some about that well so the book is the the bulk of the book is uh, a series of kind of loosely related chapters that are reflections on common character traits so there's a chapter on frivolousness there's a chapter on uh thrift there's a chapter on curiosity on and on right and so they're the kind of these isolated um, small essays about various character traits, which I thought would be helpful for a lot of people to kind of approach the subject um, through character traits that they already know of, but that they probably have not taken time to reflect on at any depth. Um, and so that's the bulk of the book. And then the there's also there at the beginning of the book, there also there's a chapter kind of introducing just the concepts of vice and virtue. Then there's a chapter on what is virtue. Actually, it's a chapter on what is vice. Then there's a bunch of chapters on vices and then a chapter on what is virtue. And it ends with a chapter on the connection between virtue and happiness. Uh, Because throughout the book, this is one of the themes I consistently tried tried to develop, even in the examination of particular character traits, is that um, what... I mean by virtue is those habits which lead us to flourishing, right? That lead us to growth, etc. Um, and so the so the virtue is in you know there's the sort of axiom that virtue is its own reward, and that is true in so far as that virtue virtue leads to happiness, okay. And, um, and so in, so it, virtue is its own reward in one sense, but it's also instrumental for, for something else. And that, that something else is, is happiness is, um, human flourishing. And I think it's important to, probably important to say, when I say happiness here, I mean something other than simply, a kind of passing emotional state. I mean, something, you know, the Greek term in Aristotle is eudaimonia, which means a kind of overall well-being. And I think, you know, and I like to um, kind of compare that to the 
you know, the uh, Jewish notion of shalom, which is a little bit different, but in, involves a sort of um, perfect peace in which all things work together as they should. And so we have these these concepts of a kind of larger scale well-being that human beings are supposed to be part of and that what makes that difficult for us is our lack of virtue. And so, um, so the goal of the book there is to sort of try to take individual vices and virtues or negative and positive character traits and put them within in a context to look at the way that they impede or uh, um, encourage our growth toward happiness. Okay. So to back up just a little uh-huh. bit, when, when you, uh, one of the things I appreciate about your book is that you point out the importance of philosophy mm. in pursuing a the title of this podcast a good life mm-hmm. that that's that is a necessity so how do you describe philosophy and i ask because some people when they hear the word and i've been one of those in the past when they hear the word philosophy they think a pointy head somebody who, who, you know, abstract, who has nothing to say to where I really am. So how do you d- describe or define philosophy when, when, when we're using this term? It's interesting. You know, I, I, many years ago, well, I taught some intro to ethics courses, and I would always begin by trying to define this word for the students. And I had, you know, and they're pro- and I think I had six or eight different things that people mean when they say it. But I think the best definition, or at least the one that's most useful, I think for most people, is the one that I gave to my uh, my oldest daughter when she was about four, and she asked me what it was, right? Because when you have me for a father, you, and your four-year-old girl, you hear about it. And I said to her, I said that philosophy is simply the practice of trying to think of the hardest and deepest questions that human beings can think of and then trying to think of answers. Mm. Okay. And so um, that is, and uh, because philosophers are what they are, that's that definition could of course, be argued about, right? Because that's what philosophers do. But I think it's useful, um, certainly in this context, and certainly for people who might have a distrust of philosophy as being a kind of abstraction or a kind of of self-indulgent fooling around with things that don't matter. That to think that what actually what you need what human beings need is in fact answers and that your, that a person's happiness is only as secure in part 
as the answers to which uh, the answers on which he's standing are right so that um you know philosophy becomes some kind of philosophy becomes critical for people when they are in crisis you see this right so that um, when they're in crisis is a time when people begin to ask questions and look for those answers. And so every person is a philosopher as soon as things go poorly. Um, and so, it, so I, not that every person needs to devote himself or even not every person could devote himself to, uh, you know, the practice of academic philosophy, but the philosophical mindset, the philosophical attitude in which we are intellectually and emotionally alive to learning about deeper realities, I think is a, just an absolute necessity for living um, life at its, well, in the best way that can be lived. Yes. So Peter, the Apostle mm -hmm. Peter, talks about uh, he said that, that we should be ready mm -hmm. to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Now, the typical evangelical definition of that is, yes, j just point people to Jesus. Just say, you know, he, you know Jesus is the answer. Whatever the question is, Jesus is the right. answer. But he he himself points to a lot of a lot of things a, a, a lot of wisdom that we have to receive and, and and it becomes which which gets back to what you're talking about in in your book when you talk about becoming a virtuous person. So talk about then what is the practice of virtue and, and and how does one become virtuous now you can start anywhere with you know in, in answer to that question so you know if someone comes up to you and says i want to be a virtuous person mm -hmm. dean abbott's response is well i think my first response is what do you know that you should be doing that you aren't doing go do that Right. It's kind of what Jordan Peterson means when he tell when he famously tells people to make their bet. So uh, he's not I mean, he's not his primary concern is not with your domestic uh, cleanliness or tidiness. Right. Right. He's that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, like you already know that there are things you could do to be better uh, and you're not doing those. So just start doing those. And then, and then, and and what he's actually saying is that um, you start being, you become virtuous by starting, right? That uh, and Aristotle talks about this too, right? That um, that we can't we can't become virtuous by studying virtue, only by being virtuous. So this is the uh, this is the this is a little bit of the paradox of what uh, of virtue is that you, you people are not virtuous well how do you they say well how do i become virtuous and i use and the answer is by being virtuous okay <laughs> it's it because it is a um 
It's a practice. Virtue is a practice. Like, um, so this may seem like an odd comparison, but like uh, yoga. I'm, I'm not into yoga, but I understand. I, you can see, right? Like day one, you're not very flexible. But yoga is a practice. You practice it. And, and the goal is that, and you're never, you're never going to be, you're never with yoga, for example, you're never going to get to the point where you're just like, well, I'm done. Right. And the same as with right. virtue. It is a, it is a practice, a, a daily practice, um, that you can only develop in by being bad at it at the beginning. So that, that's, so that, that's, how do I become a virtuous person is by, um, trying to be a little less awful today than you were yesterday. Right. <laughs> and the way you do that is by just being honest with yourself about what is, what things am I not doing that I could do to be better. But I also think, and this is something I had, you know, I mentioned Jordan Peterson. I haven't heard him talk about this. He may have, I just haven't heard it, but I think there is an, a real element of consciousness and awareness that inhibits people so that people's minds function at a particular level and they kind of run in a pattern that is difficult to break out of. So you can't, for I mean, so the obvious example is that you can't know what you don't know. So if you are unaware that you are being you, that you're not being virtuous, right? You're unaware of that. Then you can't be virtuous at that level. You can only be virtuous at the level of your awareness. And so what raises your awareness? Well, what raises your awareness is being virtuous at the level that you're aware of and, and at the level that you can be virtuous. And so um, there, I think there is a, a kind of symbiotic relationship between awareness and behavior. And that as you make your bed or do whatever these little things are that you know you need to do to um, be a better person, right? The inward uh, effect of that is that you begin to see more. And as you right. see more, you see other opportunities where you can and should practice virtue. And what, again, what, what does that mean? What, what do I mean when I say you should practice virtue? I mean that you develop habits that move you toward um, flourishing and, uh, and move you toward becoming the person that God has intended you to be, which is another way of saying you become, you move toward becoming yourself. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so the, I think there's those two components the, that there's consciousness and awareness, which is limited by vice, right? That, 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 that's probably something worth saying too, that it is vice that blinds us, that limits our awareness, that, um, 
convinces us of untruths, or rather keeps us stuck in untruths, and that as we pursue virtue, uh, the lights go on for us in, in a way. Okay, and, and that th- th- there is a lot that that could be unpacked with that. Mm-hmm. The appreciation of of cultivating it, though, as in small habits, is I, I think very helpful because we are very instantaneous people. So patience is not a classic American virtue, mm-hmm. and we want our virtue like we want everything else. Give it to me in a big chunk. Mm-hmm. You know, let me go from graduate from second grade to a junior in high school, hopefully by day after tomorrow. What what kind of, tell me what kind of church you are leading, Matt. Uh, we are reformed. Okay, Presbyterian good. So I can, I can say this then. Um, I do think that in a lot of, uh, that American culture has been influenced by, um, by a sort of Wesleyan Arminian heritage. You know, I don't know if you want to, if we can nail it down to exactly that, but there is, um, you know, within the history of Christianity, a, a doctrine of Christian perfection that right. is probably pretty influential culturally and in our history. And right. that many people, when if they think about moral, uh, their moral nature at all, they sort of think of themselves as either perfect or imperfect. And, um, and, and the notion of virtue theory is very much runs counter to that notion of moral perfectionism because, uh, and I, and I think that is difficult for many people is to say, um, you, you, you're not going to be morally perfect ever. You can only, um, you can only have virtue, which becomes unconscious, right? So that, so yeah, so let me use that as an example. So where we start is um, with unconscious vice. Let's start with that, right? So we have uh, patterns of behavior that are self-indulgent, that are destructive, that um, that we live out. Um, because we are hurting, we're damaged, we are um, destructive, traumatized, whatever. We, but we don't know, right? So we, you know, like um, we, okay, this is a pretty safe example. Uh, let's say we have a guy out there who is, who just overeats. He, he gets through life by eating pie, right? And, all, and he thinks that he eats so much pie because he just loves pie. Right. But really, he does it because he's full of unexamined sorrow. So he has this vice where he eats too much pie. What what he could do is move from unconscious vice to conscious vice. Like he could come along and say, "Ah, I realize I eat so much pie because I'm unhappy with the way my life has gone. And I, I hate my I hate my job. 
And so every night I, I console myself by eating this, uh, eating a half an apple pie, right? So now he's at the level of, of conscious vice. He knows what he's doing. He knows that it's destructive and he knows why. So what, what, what it would mean for his, his growth then is to move to conscious vice, conscious virtue, right? Where he's like now actually saying, okay, I'm going to try to practice discipline and eat only a, a quarter of a pie every night, whatever it is, right? He's making some effort. And the final stage of his growth is going to be unconscious virtue, where he doesn't even think right. about how much pie to eat. He just, you know, he naturally has, you know, two slices of pie a week and that's it. It's not a problem. He's beyond it. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the the moral growth pattern that we want to uh, seek. Um but most people, of course, spend their whole lives stuck in unconscious vice. Right. What, which you end up with, I think, was it Socrates' statement, the unexamined life is not worth living? Right, right, because it's not even a life, right? You're not even a real right. person. You're just walking in, in all of these various unconscious vices. So, so that, you know, for... For Christians, when they hear vice, that many of them will automatically assume vice and sin are just are purely synonyms. Mm-hmm. That that they mean the same thing. But you point out in your book that they're not precisely the same thing. Mm-hmm. So so talk a little bit about the distinction there. Well, vice is first of all vice is a habit, right? So you can so a person can commit a sin that's not a habit. But also, um, a, a vice is a, okay, is, is it a sin to eat pie? Uh, no, right? Uh, now, gluttony is a sin, right? <laughs> right. Um, so that, uh, you know, you could, uh, you, could t- you could have a vice in the sense that you could have a, a habit which impedes your growth, but which, you know, from a biblical point of view, whatever, may not be sin. And you can sin in a way that's not a habit. So you could sin in a way that's not a vice. Um, now, they're related, right? Because most, because you can't have a, um, you can't have a vice that's not destructive, right? So, right. Um, so, and, and sin is, of course, destructive as well. But also, I, you know, I tend to think of sin as, um, moral wrongdoing that um, requires a juridical response, right? And so sin is a like a theological category where theologians will say that sin requires mm, God's forgiveness, which you know is secured through the atonement or whatever. And I'm trying, and I, I I'm talking about vice as a component of human living which needs to be overcome to move toward flourishing. Now those things are obviously related, but but sin is a is a theological category that we talk about in terms of God's atoning and work as opposed to on the more 
horizontal level of human growth. And also, vice is a um, is a concept that I think can be understood and grasped by people who are not Christian. Right. Right. So with this idea, though, something that I have explored and pursued a little bit is the connection between our our calling as Christians. You know, Christians would say, excuse me, that we're called to sanctification, Mm -hmm. to, 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 to being made holy. To, to, to growth in holiness, to, to be more like, like like Christ. And growing up, for me, the emphasis in the church was always, when you die, you want to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. So how, so what do you do? Well, you got to get saved. So, you know, you, you pray the sinner's prayer so that when you die, you will go to heaven. And then should you do, should you do good things? Should you obey what God says? Yes. But big thing is when you die you go to heaven whereas as i've read and studied it, it seems that not that you know scripture has a lot to say about not just the good things that we should do which everyone agrees that that, that it, it's a call the christian life is a call to good but that our calling to these Christian or to, to, to virtue and, and you know in scripture it talks about various Christian virtues, the fruit of the spirit, such as that, that these things are preparation for our eternal life. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis talks about this, you know, in, in, in various books that he kind of his his um, reverse Platonism where we are here on earth shadows of what we will eventually be later on. And the closer you are to heaven, the more solid you actually are. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is that correlated at all with, with, with what you're... Yeah, 100%. 100%, right? Like, as I keep saying, you know, um, virtue is that process by which you grow toward being yourself. The cultivation of virtue is the process by which you grow to being yourself. And so what I mean in that sense is that you become more the person that God had in mind for you to be, uh, which is a way of saying um, the non-shadow you, right? You become the real you. Uh, And that the shedding of vice is, in fact, the shedding of falseness, the shedding of um, the pretending that you do uh, to 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 avoid being the real you and so absolutely you know i i think uh uh, c.s lewis has has had an enormous effect on me of course and uh but particularly uh, i think the book i found most influential on me is the great divorce uh where he where he makes this concept explicit though in a in a kind of in an analogy kind of analogous way um, where the souls preparing to enter heaven have to walk across a field of grass that's hard and hurts their feet, and um, and they basically won't do it, and and so they remain stuck as spirits 
instead of becoming their full selves on the other side of the mountains they have to cross. Um, right. And so that, you know, the, the walking across that grass is just an analogy of, for the, the pursuit of, um, virtue and moral and spiritual growth that makes you into the real self that you are. Right. So when it comes to the last question today, as parents, Mm -hmm. how would you encourage parents to teach and, and to train their children in virtue, not just get out of my hair and, and, and stop being annoying. But, you know, how would you encourage true training in virtue? Uh, I would say be virtuous yourself. Right. And I say that not flippantly. I say that as a parent who, um, who is far from a perfect father, but, but I think the uh, most important thing I would say is, um, that the best training you could give your children in virtue is to never have to mention it, right? Mm. Because you are, um, because you embody it. Now, obviously, explicit teaching is important, but explicit teaching uh, without um, clear modeling is going to go nowhere. It's actually going to be counterproductive. And so I think, you know, there is a sense in which it can sometimes even seem selfish to say what I, what matters most is my own moral and spiritual growth. But in fact, that's that's the opposite of selfish. It is um, because it is upon that process that other people's moral and spiritual growth depends. And so um, it's almost like... Um, securing your own salvation is um, the best thing you can do for others. Mm. Well, this has been really good. Been too short. I appreciate, uh, yes, I I appreciate the time that you have taken on, on this. I would, I I would enjoy talking more about this in, in the future because there's a lot of, of insight that that we can draw mm-hmm. so thank you sure. dean thank for you. taking the time today and uh and i appreciate it and i hope you have a wonderful christmas all right you too matt thank you very much Oh,